want to add my welcome to Matt's and thank each of you for being with us this morning. Particularly for our guests, we're glad that you are here and want to mention to you, just so you know, uh, we are having a potluck, a time of fellowship immediately after this morning's uh, service. Um, we want you to plan to join us and participate, whether you've brought anything or not. That's not the point. The point is we uh, look forward to that time together. And so just want to give you a heads up that as soon as this, uh, as soon as the message is over, we're going to dismiss and pick up our kids and take about five to ten minutes just to set up some tables and chairs and then enjoy a time of fellowship together and uh, want to particularly invite each of you um, who are guests to, to stay with us and join us for that time. As that Matt mentioned this morning, I'm continuing the series that I am doing in the book of James. Um, as we periodically have uh, short breaks from the, the series that he is doing in the book of Romans. So if you could go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 2. One of the great realities of life in Jesus is that relationship with him and the renewal that it brings means that we are fundamentally different people than we were apart from him. See, some, some people think that the point of a relationship or a decision in Jesus is just to get a ticket into heaven. And I think that the biggest difference it makes for today is just the fact that this isn't all that there is and that you don't have to fear for what that day will bring. And some people can think that uh, well, Jesus just came primarily to be an example, to show us how to live lives in a better way, that he helps us to learn how to not be... Um, to move from being not really nice people to humble and selfless people who, who show the world the love it needs. Now, um, it's a big deal that God would rescue us from the damnation that we deserve. don't want to belittle that at all. Um, that is huge. It's just the fact that that's not all that there is. And... Um, Love and humility and selflessness are really good traits and actions. But if that is the limit of our religion, then why did Jesus need to come and die? What was it he came to accomplish? It wasn't just to show us how far he was willing to go in order to be selfless and humble and provide an example for us. He came to do something for us. He came to transform us. James has a paradigm in his letter that is based on his understanding that what Jesus came to do is totally change us. Not from selfish to selfless, but from dead to alive because of and through his own death and resurrection to take us from bondage to freedom. So throughout his letter, James is concerned with us living out the reality that we have truly been transformed. 
And as we've noticed, he's given us different tests, different examples, areas of life where we show or reveal the work that God has done, the transformation that has taken place. And for us as believers, it's often a reality check of how are we doing and who are we living for. Are we living in the good of the life that he has bought for us, of the transformation he died and rose again to bring about? Yes, we still wrestle with old temptations and weaknesses, but we need to realize that those things no longer control us. We are no longer in bondage to our former way of thinking or living. God has given us a new heart that is alive to him. He has given us his spirit to convict us and to guide us into how we can live for him. Before we were blinded by the ruler of this world and unable to break free from a worldly way of thinking and acting, but Christ's saving work has freed us to be different people than we once were with new hearts and minds and priorities. And according to James, that difference should be evident in the way that we think and act and live. So, with that set up, we come to James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Would you read with me? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You could sum up the main point and burden of these verses in three words. Show no partiality, no favoritism, no no sinful preference that elevates one believer and lowers another. Show no partiality. They are almost the first words out of the gate. And they are the only words in these verses that are actual command or directive that James is relaying to us. The other six verses are a kind of case study, a practical illustration, an example that reinforces this directive and reveals some um, principles about this directive. And so the structure of our message this morning is really simple. There's one point. Show no partiality. One thing that we need to take away that we're called to do. Show no partiality. Now, in our time, we're also going to look at some of these principles, this uh, illustration, this case study 
um, brings up. And we're also then going to finish by looking at what I, I think James is presenting as really the overarching motive behind his call to not show partiality. Um, but the takeaway is simple. The takeaway is straightforward. We're not to show partiality with one another. We're not to divide and have favoritism and have sinful preferences that put one up and another down. So before we begin looking at this more, would you pray with me and ask God for his help? Lord, I'm aware of my need for your help, my weakness, my fatigue, um, and my inability to communicate. Uh, I'm also aware that you are sufficient, that you are mighty, that there is no lack in you. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning. Lord, where there are areas that we need to be transformed, that by your spirit you would do that good work. Where there are areas that we need to be convicted, that by your spirit you would do that good work. Where there are areas that we need to be encouraged, that by your spirit you would do what only you can do in these things, that we might be more the people that you have called us to be, more the church that you have called us to be, for our benefit and for your glory, we pray these things, Jesus. Amen. Well, James, tying these commands, this command to not show partiality with this illustration of the rich and poor man really flows from many of the Old Testament writings that, that he would have been very familiar with. For example, if we turn to Deuteronomy 10, Verses 17 through 19, Moses writes, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. That was Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. Now, th- these verses give us a great picture into how closely God holds this issue of partiality to his own identity, his own claim and statement about who he is. He holds it so dear that it's included in this description of lofty characteristics. God of God, God of gods, and Lord of lords. Meaning he is above every other competitor. There is no one else like him. No one else approaches his majesty and grandeur. Which we get an even fuller sense of as the description continues. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Things that he wants to be known by. Realities that he wants his people to recognize about him. 
This is who he is, God of gods. There is no other like him. There is no competition. When he says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it doesn't mean in front of me. It means even in my presence, no one can hold a candle to who he is, his awesomeness, his greatness, his power, and majesty. These characteristics aren't listed, so the reader will say, that's nice. They're meant to point us to the reality that he is worthy of our honor and respect and awe. He's not like the other gods that you have heard about. Gods of wood and stone that are no gods at all. He created the heavens and the earth. He rescued you from Egypt. He led you out by a pillar of fire and delivered you through the Red Sea. There is no one like our God. His name is to be synonymous with power and greatness. But this description of awesomeness takes what at least to me, can seem to be an unexpected turn when it says, he is not partial and takes no bribe. Wait a minute. Why is that in here? These other things are clear in their grandeur and their glory. And no question, this is a good trait. But why mention that here? Well, He's mentioning that here because he is mighty, but he doesn't favor those who have the means to buy their way out of trouble. He is just and righteous. He will not allow his justice to be perverted by the rich and powerful and influential. He is not impressed by human achievements or accomplishments The King of kings and Lord of lords does not look down from his throne in heaven and say, I better be nice to that guy because he can really be an advantage to my cause. Or if I don't do what that guy wants, boy, he has the ability to do me a lot of harm. So I better watch my step. The awesome God is not intimidated by anyone. He isn't bullied or manipulated. Don't confuse the messed up legal systems of this world with their loopholes and hung juries, political activists, judges, or corporate just or corrupt justices as pictures of what God is like. No high priced lawyer or offer of something under the table will sway his decisions. The most vulnerable and helpless not only receive a fair hearing, but from these verses, says that he even advocates for those with no voice. He is looking out for them. So when James illustrates the treatment of the rich and poor, After calling readers to not show partiality, it should certainly resonate with familiar passages like this. In fact, when James says that in treating the rich 
and poor man differently, elevating one, denigrating the other, that his readers have made distinctions among themselves, which, according to James, is a problem because God has made them one. He has abolished the dividing walls. So the fact that they would make then distinctions among themselves is problematic. And it reveals that they are being judges with evil hearts, evil thoughts, which I think is a direct reference to passages like this one in Deuteronomy. Because you both put yourself in the role of judge, which is actually my job, and your judgment reveals evil or worldly thoughts, ways of thinking that do not line up with the great God of gods. As God told Samuel when he came to anoint one of Jesse's sons and saw David's older brother and and thought, surely this must be the man, the next king of Israel. And God spoke to Samuel and said, do not look on his outward appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord has a different criteria by which he judges, and part of the problem with our judgments and where he gets into this idea that they come from evil thoughts is because we're looking at the wrong things. Judgments are to be based on things that we can't see. It's not a role that he has given to us. We've pointed out that many of the folks James is writing to in previous messages were likely part of the Jerusalem church that are now scattered throughout Judea following the persecution that arose after Stephen was martyred. And given the circumstances in which they would have needed to flee their homes, their businesses, most would not have had the time to get all their affairs in order, to collect all their belongings, and make smooth transition to another location that was just as suitable for them with a nice three-bedroom and two-donkey garage. No, at the time, what we have is a picture of guys like Saul traveling from town to town, hunting down followers of the way and throwing them in prison. And sometimes more than that. If they had means in Jerusalem, they might not have means wherever they find themselves now. If they had family in other cities, that might be the first place those pursuing them would go to look for them. And just like today, family members who would not have had their same convictions and understanding of who Christ was and what he came to do might not have a problem with disagreeing with them, even to the point of turning them over. If someone... Fleeing had a trade in Jerusalem, 
They might find a new location to do business in another town, but now they are the outsider that no one knows. And they're competing with the guy everybody knows and grew up with, and half of them are related to. Many of those fleeing would have ended up in whatever countryside town they could get day labor income from, from what other wealthy landowner would be willing to hire them and not ask too many questions. Now these are all folks that are coming from a church experience in Jerusalem where it was said that there was not a needy person among them. Because from time to time, as there was a need, someone who had land or houses would sell them and lay the proceeds at the apostles' feet. That's what they're coming out of, but now that's not their current experience. They're experiencing desperation and need in a way that they haven't before. So I have a bit of sympathy for congregations that were primarily made up of struggling individuals hoping that the guy who looks well off coming into their meeting might be an answer to their prayers and treats them with a bit more niceness than the guy also coming in in shabby clothes. It's somewhat understandable. Understandable, but still evil. Because it's motivated by a worldly way of thinking that this person is where my hope lies. Instead of the great and awesome Lord of Lords. It's also because it elevated one. Put another down. Based solely on the way that they're dressed. Both coming in unknown to the congregants and deciding because of the way they're dressed this is the good guy this is the guy we can ignore it reveals a heart attitude toward the poor that James is pointing out God does not share James says God has not chosen those who are poor in the world has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. The reality is, James needs to write this because that isn't the thinking that was most prevalent in that day. And let's be honest, it's not the thinking that's most prevalent in our day. At the time of the first century, there was a commonly held belief that material wealth and possessions were a sign of God's favor and blessing After all, you have examples like Job or Abraham or David or Solomon who clearly God blessed them as they followed him and that included a lot of material wealth. So it's not like there wasn't precedence, but there became this assumption that if you were rich, you must be good with God. Now, they had exceptions, of course, You know, those traitorous tax collectors and puppets of the Roman government, they're excluded from this because clearly they've left the faith. But if you were in good standing with the synagogue, 
seem to be somewhat reputable in where your money comes from, well, then the assumption was you're good with God. And isn't that why the disciples had such a strong response to the rich young ruler that comes asking Jesus what he must do to inherit the kingdom of God? And this was the disciples, guys who have been following Jesus around for the last couple of years. And, and Jesus, when he essentially lets someone get away who was wealthy, influential, and at least outwardly pious, and Jesus lets him walk. And they react with shock when he declared how difficult it was for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And, and verse 25 of Matthew 19 says, When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? What? This guy? The guy who has everything, who said he's obeyed all the law, and clearly he must have because look at his wealth, look at his influence, and if you're saying it's hard for him to get in, well then who has a shot? Where does that leave us? That's what they're really asking there, because clearly we have some trouble still left in our lives. We haven't made it like he has. Jesus didn't reply. Well, that's why I told him to sell everything he has because you have to be poor to get into heaven. That wasn't the response. That's not the moral to this story. But it was with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, the rich don't get in because they're rich, because they can buy their way in. And the rich aren't rich because they're already righteous and God loves them more. A thought that clearly was reflected in the disciples' surprise. And the thought that I think we can be tempted even today to think, even if we're not from a theology that essentially believes that we should be wealthy right now. So I think most in this room are, are able to see clearly enough that that is not of God. And yet I think it, it subtly influences our thinking and our attitudes when we do have those thoughts. So they, they must be doing something right. So they don't seem to have the problems that I have. Finances don't seem to be a worry over there. Or when we start to grumble in our hearts about the neighbor who's doing well but clearly is far from God. What gives God? What do I have to do? This just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Or the converse, the, the thought that those... Poorer than us. 
Because let's be honest, we're always kind of the measuring line. Right? The rich are those that have more than we do. The poor are right around where we're at and anything below. But the, the thought that those that don't have as much as we do, well, it's probably because of something that they've done to deserve their pitiable state. Has that ever been a thought? They can't be too godly or they wouldn't be in this predicament. I'm aware that for me, it's I'm not getting enough material credit for my righteousness. Clearly, I should be doing better than I'm actually receiving. But for someone else, I think they're just reaping what they've sown. We don't want to help the poor too much because they might use it for something they shouldn't or never learn to help themselves, which I'm not sure those are clear, gospel-motivated ideas. Now, I totally believe we need to exercise wisdom when we're seeking to serve and care for and help those that genuinely need it. And I fully believe that a handout is not a long-term solution. And I believe it can actually be harmful if it is thought of as one. But I also think that we need to be careful with our assumptions, with our judgments that we make on people's hearts and the reasons God has them in the place that he does. Because as James reveals here, our thinking, it oftentimes does not line up at all with God's thinking, with the way that he evaluates, the way that he judges. God has chosen, he says, the poor in this world to be rich in faith. That does not mean every poor person is rich in faith. Okay, but maybe because they aren't tempted to get their security and comfort and hope in their bank account, steady income, or 401k, those that do know God have a reliance upon God that has been rewarded daily in the midst of their difficult experience. They won't get into heaven because they're poor. There is only one way. It wasn't just it's impossible for the rich. It's impossible for all of us. The only way any of us get access to God is by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But in the experience, James is letting his readers know of the rich and poor. Boy, there's something that the poor often have in their relationship with God that you could really benefit from. They have something to offer. Experiences that you don't know, a reliance and a trust on God that is sweet. And he will not allow them to be dishonored through the partiality 
of the church. They're not heirs of the kingdom because they are poor, but because they have loved him more than the things that they don't have. And James also points out that the rich, the rich are the ones that have oppressed his readers, made their lives difficult by dragging them into court. And he's saying, these are the guys you want to kiss up to? These are the ones you're favoring right now? Again, given the context, it was likely that those who were rich and influential made things difficult for believers when they found out that they belonged to a group that was unpopular with religious rulers and authorities. See, the rich, they had plenty of vested interest in keeping authorities happy, of not rocking the boat in different ways. Plus, they were the ones who would have had the financial means and influence to make life miserable for believers as they're relocating, trying to find a place where they can worship God as he has been revealed in the resurrected Christ. The rich had the ability, if they wanted to run someone out of town or to use them as pawns to keep uh, religious leaders happy, they had the means to do this. And so James was showing the foolishness of partiality by letting his readers know, one, this isn't your job. You are not the judge. You are not their Lord. They're my servants. Two, your, your criteria is sinful. It's not godly. And three, even by worldly standards, this is kind of a dumb idea. Because the group that you are showing favoritism to doesn't have your best interests at heart. These are the principles that he's revealing in this illustration of the rich and poor man. Well, I think that James wants to use them to emphasize how pointless preferential behavior is in very practical terms. They're also not exactly the why behind his exhortation. And that's where I want us to go to next. So for the real motive behind showing no partiality, we return to verse 1. Let's read it again. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The problem with partiality is not that you are judging with the wrong criteria or favoring the wrong problem. It's that you are being partial or preferential or playing favorites while at the same time claiming to be a disciple of Jesus. James's reason for the command is as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The clue to understanding why faith in Christ prohibits partiality is found in how James refers to his half brother in this verse. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, again, because of some of our cultural distance, a few thousand miles and a couple thousand years, I think we can miss a lot of the significance of what is contained in these couple of words. We can get this idea that this is just his name. James is being flowery in his speech right here, adding on some other words. 
But that's not what he's doing. He's, he's not saying last name Christ, first name Jesus, title Lord. All right, we got the same guy. That, that, that's not his purpose here. These are actually loaded terms James uses to make his point. Now, Jesus, of course, is one we all know. It's his, his human name given to him by Mary and Joseph after receiving it from the angel. The word Jesus is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew name Joshua. And it means God delivers or God saves. It wouldn't have been an uncommon name at the time. He wasn't the only Jesus walking around Palestine at this time. Christ wasn't a family name. It wasn't Mary and Joseph's last name. It was a title signifying a role. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. It's a title that means the anointed one or the chosen one. When Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was, because he wasn't just walking around at the time being known as Jesus Christ, it was just Jesus. Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one that God has sent. You're the one that has come to deliver God's people. And that's why Jesus marveled that this wasn't something revealed to him by flesh and blood. The Father had to reveal this to him. Combined, the name and the title are meant to identify the man Jesus as God's anointed servant. And that's why throughout the New Testament they're so commonly used together. Now, a little bit less common is the additional designation of Lord on top of the name and title. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is a term that means supreme master. The Greek word was used in place of both Hebrew words Adonai and the proper name of God, Jehovah. James isn't just identifying who our faith is in. He's reminding us why the who matters. Show no partiality because your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ or our supreme master and God's chosen means of deliverance. And oh yeah, the Lord of glory. Just in case there was any confusion about the effect that these titles were to have upon us, James removes all question marks when he identifies him as the Lord of glory. Glory signifies greatness, majesty, honor, and fame. And the Lord of glory means that he reigns supreme over all splendor, majesty, and honor. No other fame or grandeur comes close to his. Paired with the command to not show partiality, James is not so subtly pointing out that there is only one who is truly set apart and worthy of our praise. Show no partiality among yourselves because your faith is in our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. 
it's a bit mixed up when we're preferring one another, claiming to follow him. He's got no competition. There's none like him. Psalm 19, 1 and 2. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, writer of Hebrews uh, identifies Jesus as creator, one used by God to bring about all that there is and sustain it. These verses are talking about Jesus. The heavens declare his glory. If he's Lord of glory, it's included here. The sky above proclaims his handiwork day after day, night after night. It speaks of who he is and how there is none like him. From the incomprehensible hugeness of galaxies flung across the universe to the subatomic, we've only just begun to scratch the surface, marveling in God's created glories. David, thousands of years ago, can point us to the unceasing declarations of the heavens poured out day by day, night after night, from his vantage point of a shepherd watching his flocks, undistracted by his cell phone or Netflix queue, gazing at the sky, listening to the sounds around him, marveling in the creativity and the wonder and the awe of the God he knew. For those who are willing to listen to creation's proclamations, his glory only grows in awesomeness with electron microscopes and Hubble telescopes. I saw pictures this week of, from the Hubble of just hundreds of galaxies that it captures and sends back to us. I mean, things that David couldn't even have imagined what was beyond these little twinkling white lights. And it doesn't lessen God's glory. The more we know, the more we should wonder. The more we should be captured at who he is and how there is none like him. How many species remain undiscovered in the depths of the ocean or the heart of the Amazon? His glory is both accessible all around us and utterly inexhaustible. It kind of reminds me of the the 80s commercial for the army. We do more by 9 a.m., most people do all day. Be all that you can be. 
That's my Veterans Day shout out. In creation, in sustaining and upholding, in ruling, redeeming and rescuing, he has done more, is doing more, and will do more day by day, night after night than we can possibly imagine or give him credit for or begin to understand. So what does the rich or wise or eloquent or attractive or strong or athletic or popular or talented man or woman have on the Lord of glory? The one about whom it is written, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of Of God the Father. As if creation and upholding that wasn't enough of the glory that he has in salvation. Becoming one of us. That's why he is elevated, elevated above every name. That's why every knee will one day bow. Every tongue confess his lordship, his greatness, his grandeur, his right to rule over all. In light of who our Lord is, James says there shouldn't be partiality displayed in our midst due to differences between believers. We are all brothers who have the same Lord. He is deserving of all honor, prestige, praise why would we then turn to judge and prefer other members of the body on the basis of clothes or skin color or material affluence or style or age or social status or as we've seen the last two weeks in romans 14 different practices and levels of faith i want to be clear Um, i want to make a distinction this doesn't mean that no one is ever due honor um Paul wrote in Romans, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Honor is clearly something that we are to give to one another. It's for something that someone has done, something that God has done in them. We honor what is honorable. So where we see God at work in individuals, We want to recognize that. 
we want to give honor because it not only honors that individual, but there's a Godward element, gratitude, respect for what God has done. And it builds up the other person, but it also gives praise and glory to God. That's different from partiality that divides and, and as James points out in his illustration, dishonors one man. Partiality raises one and lowers is another. You sit at my feet, or in the case of the bribe, where the rich man may get his favoritism. Well, somebody else is losing that case. Somebody else has had justice perverted because of the partiality to the one who could pay. Another problem with partiality or preferential treatment is I expect to benefit from this person in some way. I expect to one day get something from my association with them. Not just material things, as it was with the rich, or perhaps, perhaps it could be acceptance, or security, or love. That, that's why I'm favoring this person, this group, and putting down another. James, or Jesus told a parable in Luke 14. He said, when, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. God wants to be the source of our identity and provider of all that we need. He wants us to seek unfading eternal rewards from him. Not to seek to scratch one another's back for the things that rot and fade away. Treating others according to what they can do for me is seeking to replace the Lord of glory with finite, faulty providers. I want to close with an exhortation from a reformed, more accurate, transformed practitioner of hardcore partiality to the point of persecuting, imprisoning those he disagreed with, former Pharisee Saul, as he appeals to those made alive in Christ to live transformed lives in the way that they relate with one another. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, this isn't a pious theory. This is a persecutor of the faith, now imprisoned for the faith as he writes, because he encountered the Lord of glory. He's proclaiming, we have one hope, one Lord, one faith. God hasn't saved us to be partial. He saved us to be one. United as his body, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would live as if that word really means something. That you indeed are our supreme master. That we will follow you where you direct us to go. That we will live how you call us to live. Lord, I pray that we would be captured and in awe of who you are, who you have revealed yourself to be in your word, who you are because of what we observe in the world around us, and most of all, who you are because of what you have done on our behalf, for which we will never cease to sing your praises. Lord, and as we are captured and amazed by you, would you help us to love one another? To love our neighbor as ourself. To seek to be one, not part. Not as one is better than another. Allow us to humble ourselves and love one another. The world might see we are your disciples by our love one for another and glorify you until you return. In your name we pray. Amen.